Good morning, everyone. Let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, we are under your word. And that is the best place to be in this world, to be under your word. Because left to our own devices, we think the lie is the truth. Our spirits are depressed because we follow lies and half-truths. But it is under your word that we get clarity. We get full understanding. We know what life is about. We know who you are. We know what we are. And that brings salvation. Once again, we acknowledge and we confess and we praise that, Lord, you have been very good to us through your word. And I pray that ministry will continue mightily here this morning. May the God, as the gospel is preached, may we have a clearer, more realistic understanding of the gospel. And may this gospel transform our lives and lead us into worship. All these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, if there is one thing that I want to convey to y'all, is that God is very active and involved in the life of his people. God doesn't remain silent. God doesn't remain quiet. God doesn't remain inactive. But the more that I live, the more that I realize God is very active in the life of his people. And I've been so blessed every day um, by the just involvement of God in my life. And one of the best examples that can happen to you this week, is, to me this week, was I think I shared this with the um, Brooke Small Group, but it made such an impact on my week that I have to share it during sermon, right? So it was Thursday morning. Um, I was commuting to work. I was in the subway, um, the metro. Uh, the night before, I didn't sleep very much. Like I got maybe four hours of sleep. And then in the metro, I had to like write the sermon, right? So I was like writing the sermon. And I got four hours of sleep, I was like, kind of dozing off. And luckily, I didn't charge my iPad, so I had like 3% battery, so I had to like close it. I go, yes, I can sleep. So I, God is telling me to sleep. So I closed my iPad, and I went to fall asleep. I was so tired. But then I hear the voice from the back. I was like facing, my, my, I was facing towards the back. You know how the metros work? And some guy in the back, in a very meek voice, he says, excuse me, Right? I go, is this that? Who's this? Excuse me. He said, oh no, he's going to ask for money. I just want to say that Jesus said that Jesus is the Lord of my life. And Jesus says, if you believe in him, that you will never die. And then he starts singing. And I'm going to sing what he sang to you. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rode away it was there by faith I received the light and now I am happy all the day when he sang that song my heart leaped for joy all the tiredness went away and it affects me even now. I feel the presence of the Lord. In that subway cart, when that guy sang, everyone in the subway cart could care less of who he was, what he had to say. Maybe to some of them, he was a crazy man. But to me, he was a messenger of God, you know? 
Who was this guy? I, he left. He was an old Korean gentleman, shorter than me, broken English. He, either, he, he spoke English either like a Hispanic or an Ethiopian. I don't know where he's from. Not very good English. But that song, God preached to me through that song. People, the Lord speaks to you. He is active in your life. He's involved in your life. It is only those who worship God regularly. It is only those who have a relationship with Him regularly can see His activity. It isn't that He's not involved. I think the reason why we can't see Him oftentimes it is because we are not worshiping Him regularly. It is the person whose mind is on the things of God. It is those people that can see. If you're not worshiping Him, you're not going to be able to see Him. God is involved. He is active in our lives. And one of the ways that He's very active in our lives is that He is active in testing our faith. God is a God who tests our faith. I know maybe for some of us, that's a controversial statement. We think, like we just sang, God is a good, good father. He loves me for who I am, for who I am, for who I am. And I'm loved by you, for that's who you are. And those are all kind of true, I, I suppose. We think in our minds that God is a good, good father who doesn't do anything bad for us. And I'm not saying being testing, testing us is bad for us, but he doesn't just do things that we think is good. If you look at scripture, it is clear. God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, tests the faith of his people. Do you know that? And the best example is John chapter 6, feeding of the 5,000. 5,000 men, which means there are more children, like more than 5,000 people are sitting, are, are coming to the mountain to listen to, to, listen to Jesus preach. 5,000 people. You know what the 5,000 people in the field did? 5,000 people. And Jesus looked at them. And they were hungry. And he looked at Philip, his disciple, and says, Philip, how are we going to feed them? Which basically is he's asking Philip, Philip, what are we going to do? How are we going to feed them? It says in scripture, Jesus knew what he was going to do, but he asked that question to test Philip, to test what is in the heart of Philip. Jesus Christ, if you belong to God, he will test your faith on a regular basis. Testing mean, doesn't mean he's going to tempt you to do evil. God is not evil. But God tests you. And by testing you, he is asking you, what are you going to do? He tests you through disappointments, through unemployment, through children who don't listen to you, to dreams and plans that do not go the way you think they ought to go, by difficult people, difficult spouses, Every trials in life, through those things, God tests you and He asks you, when you go through, this, through these things, what are you going to do? Who are you going to turn? Who are you going to trust? What are you going to do? God tests your faith. He doesn't test your faith to measure how strong you are. That's not the purpose of that test. 
He doesn't test you to see whether you can endure it by yourself. That is not, that is not why God tests you. God tests you. There are many reasons why God tests you, but for our purposes today, there are three main reasons why God tests you. God tests you, number one, to reveal through those tests, to reveal what you really believe in and what, who you really are. There's nothing like tests to reveal to yourself and to God who you really are and what you really believe in. You understand? You do not know what you know unless you're tested, right? In your mind, maybe you're, you're a straight-A student, but when, but when you actually take the test, and, when you, and that, that test clearly shows what you really know. God tests your faith to make you see what you really believe in and who you really are. God tests your faith, not only to reveal to yourself who you are, but to reveal who He is. It is through those trials and tests that God makes clear to you who you are and, what, and, who, he, and, and who He is in you. God tests you to reveal who He is. And God tests you so that through those tests, you will mature, that you will be transformed. He tests you to reveal who you are. He tests you so that he, he will reveal who He is to you. He tests you so that through those tests that your character will conform to the image of Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of His testing. And if you belong to Him, He will constantly test your, test your faith. The best example of, this, of, of, of these things is the life of John MacArthur and John Piper, two of the guys that I respect the most. I think I'm a Baptist, or I'm thinking about being a Baptist because of him. But these two men, faithful to the Word of God, they were tested, right? They both had, the, the, the way they were tested was they both had terminal cancer. How do they deal when the doctors told them that they have terminal cancer? You know what John Piper did? He wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Cancer. He says, when I got cancer, I realized that cancer was a gift from God. And through that cancer, he revealed to me who he is. When he got diagnosed with cancer, he praised the Lord. He understood more things about God. Why? Because that test revealed about what Piper really believes in. And Piper truly believes in what he preaches. He believes in the sovereignty of God. When John MacArthur was diagnosed with, with cancer, he was so excited that he was going to go to heaven. And when the doctor says, hey, by the way, oh, like, it's relapsed. You don't have cancer anymore. John, Piper, John MacArthur said he was disappointed. Oh, man, I was going to go to heaven. I got to stay here. He was really disappointed when the doctor said, you're clear cancer. What does that show? It shows what he really believes in. It shows he really believes in the kingdom of God. He really believes in heaven. Trials and tests reveal what you really believe in. Question I ask us this morning. For those of you who are going through tests and trials, honestly, what do those trials and tests reveal about you? It is one thing to think that you know something about God while you're listening to my sermons. But it is another thing when you go through trials. The trials reveal what is real in your heart. 
And, and the reason I start with this is because Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 13 shows God testing Abram's faith. Genesis chapter 12, you know, starts off great, right? God calls Abram out of his father's household and, and the life that he knew when Abram was 75 years old. And God tells Abraham, Abraham, leave your father's household, leave the life you know, and go to the land that I promised. And Abraham committed, and Abraham obeyed. Abraham obeyed. He did not know where he was going, but at 75 years old, he believed the promises of God, so he obeyed. He took his family and everything that he had, which shows commitment, and he went to the Lord, to the land that the Lord showed him. When he arrived at the land that the Lord showed him, the, the land was like inhabited by hostile people. It wasn't a perfect land, but in, even, even in that hostile background, Abraham knew that land was the land that God promised, so he stayed and he sojourned. And everywhere he went in that promised land, he built an altar, he worshipped God. Abraham was a great man of faith, and it is through Abraham's life we get the definition of faith, right? That's what we, that's what we preached about in the last couple of weeks. Definition of faith is you obey God, you commit to God, you worship God, and you follow God wherever He leads you. That's faith. Abraham exercised faith. Fantastic. That was the honeymoon. Now the test comes. Test number one. Abraham is in the land of Canaan, the land that God promised him. God allowed famine to be in that land. This isn't supposed to be the way it was supposed to work, right? If you think God shows you a place to go, he's going to make that land awesome. No, when Abraham arrived, there was famine in that land. Once again, just because God takes you to certain places, it does not mean that that land's going to be filled with milk and honey and, 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 and trouble-free. Just because God gives you a job, it doesn't mean the job is a perfect fit for you. Just because he sends you to certain places, it, he doesn't, doesn't mean it's going to be trouble-free. So there was famine in the land, you see. And what did Abraham do? He looked at the famine. He looked at the fact the land doesn't have any food. Yes, it's true, God promised that land will belong to him. But when famine struck, he picked up this tent and he went to Egypt. Why? Because Egypt looked better. Egypt looked more prosperous. God's promises are muted, and what he sees becomes more clear. God allowed famine to come. As soon as famine came, Abraham picked up his tent and left and abandoned the promises of God. Test number two, right? He's in Egypt. And he realizes his wife is very beautiful. And he realizes the king, of, the king of Egypt, the princes of Egypt, will lust after, will want his wife for themselves. And he's afraid, right? That if, if, they, if, if, the, if they knew that he was her husband, they're going to kill him to get to her. So what does he do? He thinks about it. He makes a logical assessment of the situation. And he tells his wife, hey, you, you got to tell him that I'm your brother, right? And tell him I'm not your husband. Tell him, tell him I'm, I'm your brother. 
Because the only way that I will live is if, if I'm your brother and you need to go to you need to go to Pharaoh's house, right? You need to leave, basically, and and and, and you need to go so I can live. Abraham makes an on, makes a logical assessment of his situation, and in the sake of self-preservation and self-life, he decides to sell his wife. A few verses ago, he's a man of great faith. A few verses later, he's a guy who is giving, giving his wife to another man so that he can live. First test that Abraham endured, he failed miserably. What do these tests reveal, reveal about what Abraham, what Abraham believed in? When troubles come, Abraham depended upon his sight rather than faith. When the famine came, he heard great promises of God. He knew it, right? But when the famine came, he decided to abandon that faith and operate based upon what he sees. That is revealed through his first test. What is revealed through his second test? It is revealed that he is a self-preserving man. And he is a very logical man. He makes assessment in his, of the situation with his mind, and he tracks and he makes the best course of action for himself. He doesn't pray, he doesn't cry out to God, he doesn't ponder what he needs to do. No, he makes the logical assessment of the situation and he follows his own logic. Isn't that us? Yes, you hear these words of mine on Sundays and you go to a small group, but when difficulties come, do we not make logical assessment of the situation? And do we not follow the way that we think it is best rather than turning to God? These tests reveal that Abraham is a man of sight and not faith in troubles come. He's a man of logic and not prayer when trials come. He is a man of self-preservation and not self-sacrifice when trials come. It's clear. On the Burke Small Group on Friday, we were like, dissecting what Abraham did on, in Hebrews chapter 12, in Genesis chapter 12, and we were angered. Me and Rebecca got angered. The feminists in us got angered at what Abraham was doing. What a jerk, that guy. What does it reveal about God? Abraham's test. Number one, God intervenes. God doesn't just let Abraham do what he wants to do. He doesn't let Abraham sell his wife. God intervenes. He persuades Pharaoh. He influences Pharaoh. Not only God intervenes, God saved Abraham. Pharaoh could have killed Abraham's life for lying to him. But rather than killing him, Pharaoh lets him live. Abraham, God saves Abraham's life. He intervenes and he saves Abraham's life. Not only that, God restores Abraham. It says in verse, he restores God. He, God restores Abraham. And how do we know how, how do we know God restored Abraham? Look at verse 3. From Egypt, verse 3 says, and he journeyed 
from Negev as far as Bethel to the place where, he, where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. In Egypt, Abraham failed miserably. He abandoned the promises of God. He betrayed his wife for self-preservation. He failed miserably. But what does God do? Does God say, you are no good to me, Abraham? No. He restores Abraham. And, and the way you know is God brings Abraham back to Bethel, where he first, where he, it's the place where he first pitched the tent. It is a place where he first honored God. What does that mean? It means, by the fact that he's at Bethel, it means that God has not given up on Abraham. Right? The fact that he is in the place where the blessing started, which it means that the promises that God has made to Abraham still remains true. Even though Abraham abandoned God's plan, God still did not abandon his commitment to Abraham. That's why he brought Abraham back to the place where he started. It reveals that God is a restorer. It reveals that God is faithful. Why did God bring Abraham back? Why didn't he just give up on Abraham? If someone betrays us, the very, it's a very natural thing for us to abandon people who betray us. But God doesn't betray Abraham. God restores him and brings him back. Why? Because God is faithful. Why, what is the definition of God is faithful? God does everything that he promised. Even though Abraham failed, because God promised Abraham that he was going to bless him, God is going to honor his promise. God is faithful despite Abraham's unfaithfulness. And not only that, in, uh, in, in Bethel, God not only promises, tells Abraham that his promise still rings true, he allows Abraham to worship him. When he's back at Bethel, he worships God. And that is huge. Because, if, because one of the greatest consequences of sinning, of betraying God, is that you, do not, you cannot worship Him. If you sin against the Lord, you cannot worship Him. You cannot. That's why David in Psalm 51, when he committed that great sin, when he, when he, when he, when he killed someone and when he had adultery, when he killed her husband, he committed this great sin in Psalm 51. David's greatest concern is, Lord, do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. I've done this horrible thing, but Lord, please, do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. Do not let me not be able to worship you. That's David's greatest fear. When you sin against the Lord, your spirit cannot worship Him. And to David, that is worse than dying. If you don't worship God, your heart is in darkness and your mind is insane. When you worship God, your heart is free and your heart is joyful and your heart is normal and you know things that are real. God restores Abram so that Abram can worship God again. What does Abraham's test reveal about God? It reveals that he intervenes, that he saves, that he restores, 
And he allows us to worship him again. What is Abraham's response? After God was faithful to him, what was Abraham's response? It says in verse 4, he built an altar, and there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. What does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? It means three things, calling upon the name of the Lord. Number one, calling upon the name of the Lord is declaring that God, God is your deliverer and God is your savior. When Israel's go, 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 go to battle, they call on the name of the Lord because calling on the name of the Lord means the Lord is their deliverer, the Lord is their savior. So when Abraham went back to Bethel and when he called on the name of the Lord, he means it is the Lord who saved me from Egypt, in Egypt. It is the Lord who delivered me in Egypt. That's what it means when Abraham said he, when Abraham calls out in the name of the Lord. God is my deliverer. God is my savior. Second meaning to, to call the name of the Lord, it means is an act of worship. It is to speak with your voice out loud and worship him because he is great. By the way, I'm a big fan of like when you worship God, whether corporately or whether privately, you got to call out. You got to use your voice to call out to Him physically. We're not, like I think a lot of people when they pray, they, they, they go silent, like they're like they're like Buddhist monks meditating. No, the way you worship God, you call out the name of the Lord with your voice and declare with your voice how great He is. Abraham in Bethel was using his voice to worship God and says, Lord, you are great. You are faithful. Your promises are true. You protect me. You are my God and my king. Abraham is worshiping God with his voice. That's what it means to call out in the name of the Lord. Use your voice to worship God. Privately, publicly, use your voice to worship God. That's what Abraham is doing. And the third meaning of calling on the name of the Lord, he is declaring and teaching the, the, the unbelievers of the land who God is. He's saying to the unbelievers of the land, you unbelievers, I have a God who is my deliverer. I have a God who is my savior. I have a God who is my protector. My God is awesome. He's teaching and declaring to the unbelieving people of the land who God is. What is Abraham's response after his failure? He calls out in the name of the Lord. He declares to God, you're my savior. He worships God saying, you're awesome. And he teaches others about God. Isn't that interesting? Abraham had an epic fail. Right? He betrayed his wife. He betrayed God. He had an epic fail. But the conclusion of that test is that he ends up worshiping God and declaring who he is to God and to other people. Isn't that interesting? What is the proper response when you fail? Is worship. Look, God would allow you to go through tests. He, he will. And by going through tests, you will begin to know what you really are, what is really inside of you. And so oftentimes, what you discover about yourself, you're not going to like. For example, like when I was first starting as a career as a lawyer, 
I got a job at a huge law firm. I made it, man, right? To celebrate, I bought a little BMW and I drove around my little BMW because that's what lawyers do. I made it, man. And I was, I worked myself to death, by the way. I worked seven days a week. I, I think I work hard now. I work seven days a week. After preaching on Sunday, I would go back to work. But God took that job away from me. And you know what I discovered about myself after he took away that job? That I was idolizing career and money more than him. A past, I was a pastor then too. I was preaching the name of God. I was preaching these things. And yet, I wasn't really worshiping him. I was worshiping my job and my money and whatever it is. God will let you go through tests to make you see what you, what you really are what you really believe in. And when you discover that, I will tell you something, you're not going to like it. You're not going to like your cowardness. You're not going to like your idols. You're not going to like your nastiness. You're not going to like your lust. You're going to discover the thing, the sin that is written in the Bible, applies, everything applies to you. If God loves you, he will make you discover that. Unbelievers will never discover this. Unbelievers may believe that they, they think that, that God exists. Unbelievers may even think that they need God. But unbelievers will never see what is truly inside of them because they're ignorant of God. But the benefit and the reality of the believer is the Holy Spirit will not leave you alone. He will reveal things about you that you will not like. Get married. Love marriage. But let's be real here, people. Marriage reveals so much about your sin that you had no idea that you had when you were single. The thing that came out of my mouth against my wife when we, after I married her I revealed to me such cruelty that I thought that I didn't have when I was single. If you belong to God, you will see things about yourself. Then the question is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do when, God, when, you fail, when those tests reveal about who you really are? Are you going to stay in your guilt? Or are you going to praise God? God does not want you to stay in your guilt, by the way. When you begin to see things, you will feel guilty. You will feel miserable. But God does not want you to stay there. Satan wants you to stay there. Two weapons at Satan's arsenal. Number one, he makes you... Not take seriously God's holiness. You know, you can do that. Dude, you know, watch it, drink it, party it. Yeah, come on, there's nothing wrong. Arsenal, but his weapon number one makes you question the holiness of God. Weapon number two, he makes he condemns you. He makes you feel miserable about your sin. He'll tell you, yeah. Look, 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 look at you, man. Look at that greedy, nasty part of you. That's who you are, by the way. 
not only is trying to, Satan trying to make you feel guilt, just remaining guilt, your pride will make you want to feel remaining guilt. You know why your our pride, like, if you think that God can't forgive you, and you're remaining in guilt because you believe that God can't forgive you, I'm really sorry to say, I want to make you feel bad about you making you feeling bad, but if you think God can never forgive me because of, the, of this, that's pride talking. What, is that, what are you really saying? You're saying, I am so bad that according to my assessment, this, this sin is bigger than what God can do, what God, how God can forgive. Your remaining in guilt is pride. Yes, God reveals things about you that is very nasty. But what does God want you to do? He wants you to remember, think really hard. And he wants you to understand that sin that you feel guilty of, that sin that you feel so guilty of, it is because of precisely that sin and million other sins that you have that you haven't discovered. It is because of that sin that Jesus Christ has come to die for you. The, re- the reason why Jesus, you need Jesus to forgive you is that that sin that you have is so horrible, only God can forgive you. And when you discover your nastiness, you've got to think hard and remember, it is because of sins like that that you need Jesus Christ to save you. And it is because of sins like that Christ has come into this world. And it is because of sins like that Christ has died on the cross for you. It is because of sins like that that you need, deliver, you need deliverance. And Christ had come to deliver you. You go, oh, that's why Jesus had come to die for me. Oh, it is that, that reason why I need forgiveness. Oh. For a lot of us, forgiveness is a concept and not a reality. And it is not a reality because we don't know how, how, how bad we are. But when by the grace of the Holy Spirit, He makes you realize how bad you are, you need to remember it is because of Jesus like that that Jesus has come to die for you. And Jesus has set you free. When you realize it is because of sins like that, Jesus has died for you, you begin to understand how much He loves you. I love repenting. I love it when God reveals my nastiness and pride. It's not pleasant. But I love it because as I become cognizant of what a monster I am, I walk in my treadmill and I say, Oh, that's why you had to die for me. Oh, but I was that way now, but I realize you've changed me from the person that I was right Oh, this sin reveals this, like, I had to, like you had to die for me, and I could be far, more, far worse than like, right now, but you have delivered me, for, like, you, know, you're, you're, you have delivered me from this like, terrible sin, that, that worst sin that I could have committed, and you're constantly delivering me. <laughs> oh, that's what you're doing in my life. My life, it is a constant awareness of how God is forgiving me and how Jesus is delivering me from sin. That's a nucleus of my worship, by the way. When you become realized that this is why God has delivered you, His love for you becomes real. 
And when your love for you becomes real, your heart is filled with so much joy of the fact that you are forgiven, of the fact that you are being delivered, of the fact that you belong to God. When these things become real, your heart becomes so joyful that you will want to worship God. And when you start to worship God, all the promises that He has for you in Scripture, He becomes really true. Do you know that? So repentance leads to joy and worship and not guilt. My wife, when she was visiting, when she came here last year, she listened to, she doesn't listen to a lot of my sermons, God bless her. She listened to one of my sermons last year and she told me, now after listening to your sermon, I felt guilty and sorrow and yet I felt joy. I don't know how to explain it. And I told her, that's right. That's exactly how you're supposed to feel. Sorrow, but joy. Are you worshiping him? Maybe you don't know joy. You don't know joy because you don't know that you're delivered in real way. And you don't know your deliberate real ways because you're not cognizant of what a sinner you are. The more you realize your sin, the more real his forgiveness for you becomes. The more his forgiveness for you becomes real. And that's what exactly what Abraham is doing. He failed miserably. No one has failed. Like he failed God, failed his wife. But he ends up in praise because God delivered him. Not only that, that worship transformed Abraham's character. How do you know? Events in chapter 13 shows you how God transformed him. After the events of, 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 of Genesis chapter 12, God tests him again, right? God testimony in Egypt. God restores him. Abraham praises God. And now God, God takes him to another test. The, other, the new test is conflict between him and his, and his nephew Lot. For those of you who don't remember, Lot's father passed away when Lot was young. So Abraham raised Lot like, like a dad. But the problem happened in like in, like, in, like in many family situations, the problem was they became too rich. They became too wealthy, right? And they were so rich, and by the wealth in those times were measured by cattle and herds. The more successful they became, the more herds and cattle they had. And they have so much cattle between Abraham and Lot, and in their limited land, the people began fighting. There's nothing like money, by the way, to divide a family, right? The test that God led Abraham through this time was conflict with his family member. By the way, that is the most common thing, common way that God tests our faith, through interpersonal conflict. Listen to me carefully. God is a God of sovereignty. Everything that we are and have right now, it is because God designed it and God placed it there. 
including the people of your life. The wife that you have, God has given to you. How do you know? She said yes to you when you asked her out. That's a miracle. Right? What are you talking about? I'm a stud. No, you're not. God has orchestrated the situation in time so that your wife and you met in a certain day in a certain time. And God, for some reason, by miracles, miracles, made her fall in love with you. All right, Milton. Also, God, by miracle, miracle, God made her fell in love, her fell in love with you. Right? Let's be equal about it. Right? I don't want to be, you know. Did you choose your parents? No. Did you choose your kids? No. Did you choose your employer? Were, like, were, were these companies all actively trying to recruit you? And you say, were you like a, like a first draft of NFL pick? Hmm, I will take this team. No. Remember when you were trying to get that job, you were nervous whether they're not going to hire you? Right? You remember that? You had that job because God gave you that job. And with that job comes your boss and your coworkers and your clients. Every person in your people in your life, God has placed them in your life. And God is going to use them to test you. Difficult situations, conflicts, heartbreaks, disappointments, people letting you down. When these things happen, God is asking you, what are you going to do? Are you going to obey me about loving your enemies? Are you going to obey me about forgiving 70 times 7? Are you, going to, are you going to obey me about not repaying evil with evil, but repaying evil with good? Are you going to obey me about you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? Are you going to submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ? Are you going to obey me about that? Your horrible bosses, are you going to obey me about my command when I said... Be, more, be better employees to, your, to, to, the, to the masters who are abusing you. Because submitting to them, to the abusive masters, glorify God more. Are you going to obey me about that? He asks you those questions during interpersonal conflicts. Are you going to obey me about that? These other people are the number one sources of our tests. They are, the, they are our pop quizzes. They are our semester midterms. They are the final exams of, our te- of, of, of the test of our faith. Other people. And this is the test that Abraham is, Abraham, Abraham is going through. Look. Lot is his junior, like his son. And his people are fighting with Abram's people. And if he was a traditional Korean dad, he will say, Lot, calm your people down. You need to submit, your people need to submit to my people because I am granddad. I am, the, I am big daddy. Abram was big daddy. And he could say, Lot, we're blessed and we're here because God made a promise to me and not you. I'm the big daddy. I'm the guy that received the blessings from God, not you. I didn't hear God say, Lot, you'll be a father of great nations. He says, Abraham. Who's Abraham? That's moi. And if we need to separate, 
right? If, we, if our people can get together, then we've got to divide. And if we're going to divide, guess who gets the bigger land, better land? I do. Why? Because I'm Big Daddy. By biblical rights, by cultural rights, Abram could tell Lot what to do. But what did Abraham do? He said, Lot, we're family, we're kinsmen, and we shouldn't fight. And I think the best course of action is for our, for our properties to separate. By the way, this doesn't mean separation. Like, it's not like, you know, people use this passage to justify divorce. If we can get along, can we separate? No, you moron. That's not what this, that's not what this like, passage is about. Abraham thought the best course of action to save his family is to separate property. But Abraham said, Lot, I will give you whatever you want. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot, you choose what is best for you, and I'll follow your decision. That is huge, isn't it? Look, before Abraham, look, Abraham, the chapter back, was a self-calculating, self-preserving guy. Abraham is not naturally a nice guy. He's not. And we will see that when he, in the way he treats Hagar, right? His, his wife's servant. Man, when we study that, women are going to get really mad at me. Not me, but Abraham. Abraham is not a nice guy naturally. He's not. He's a guy who's willing to sell his wife so that he can live. He's not a nice guy. But when he offered Lot, right? The, the choice to do what he wants to do, and Abraham's just going to follow, that is uncharacteristic of Abram. Abram is saying, it is better for you to have the better property, right? So that we can, we, so that we don't fight. Abram is choosing family over property in this situation. Was Abram always like that? No. Abram before chose property over family. But now Abram's choosing family over property. It's crazy. It's a change. Abram was willing to give Lot the better land. The scripture says the land that Lot chose, right, was like the Garden of Eden. It looked like Egypt. Remember Egypt, the land, you know, Abraham, that first day God's promises for, the land looked exactly like Egypt in the Garden of Eden. The land looked great. Logic says, go to that land. That land is better. That land is more successful. That's what logic would say. And Abraham was a man of logic, was he not? But Abraham said, logic is meaningless. It's not as important as God promised to me. When Abraham is offering that land to Lot, Abraham could do that because Abraham remembered God's promise, and God's promise was that land that he is in, God's going to bless. So that, in this particular moment, Abraham became a man of faith and not sight. You could see the transformation in Abraham through this test. Test not only reveal what is inside of you, the bad things inside of you, test also reveals how God transformed you. Right? One of the brothers I love dearly here struggle with family relationships. 
right? Difficult father, difficult sister, whatever. And he visited them, like last year. And same scenario, difficult father, difficult sister. But he said, tells me, my attitude towards them has changed. God let him go through difficult father, difficult sister, but through that test, God reveals how God has changed his attitude. Test not only reveal what is bad about you, test also reveals how God, cha- God is changing you. Abraham changed. Why? How? Because Abraham learned to call on the name of the Lord. Abraham failed. Abraham was delivered. Abraham restored. In Abraham's mind, God is great. Because he went through all that, because he could call on the name of the Lord, Abraham's character changed. God lets you go through tests and trials and failures. So that through them, you can, you, the love of God becomes real to you. And by, when love of God becomes real to you, you will worship Him. And by worshiping Him, your character will change. That's the way you change. That is the only way that Abraham changed. Abraham was 75 years old. Do you think 75-year-old men can easily be changed? Like God bless my mom and her friends. But they're more... Like, if I just, like, tell my mom, suggest something to my mom, she goes livid. How dare you change my, like, like you know, how, my mom's listening. Honey, you shouldn't, like, you know what? She gets mad when I try to, like, suggest things for her. Because they're set in their ways. Abram had a fundamental shift when he was 75. Why? Because he learned how to call on the name of the Lord. How do you deal with the tests of your life that deals with other people. Maybe some of you are going through the test this morning. Maybe some of you fought yesterday. Maybe some of you fought on the way to, way, way to church. I feel some uncomfortable movements here. Maybe I hurt a nerve. What are you going, what are you, how do you, how do you become, how do you Pass that test of, 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 the, of this kind of relationship. You've got to call on the name of the Lord. I know it is tempting when you go through interpersonal difficulties that you want to say it's the other person's fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my husband's fault. It's my kid's fault. It's someone else's fault. We want to, we want to put the blame on someone else. You ever, do, you ever do that? Like you just blame someone and the more you think about Blaming that person, the more angry you get. You ever do that? Like, you just think about how the other person wronged you, and it, it just recycles, like, your mind over and over and over again. And the more you think about the person, the more angry you become, and the more vengeful things that you think about saying. The focus should not be. Yes, maybe the other person hurt you. But the solution out of it is for you to praise the Lord. Call on the name of the Lord. Think about what your attitude reveals about the sin, what you are on the inside. I know it's the other person's fault. Maybe it is. But the way you react against that person reveals some nasty vileness that is inside of you. And when you understand the nasty vileness and, 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 and bloodthirst, you have bloodthirst, right? 
right? The bloodthirst is you want to use the, the, your, your ability to speak and form sentences and you want to make the sharpest like, knife and you want to stick it, right? That is evil, wicked, and, and, and of the devil. Maybe recognize that that is inside of you. And maybe recognize it is because of attitudes like that that you need forgiveness, that Jesus has, Jesus has come to die for you. When other people wrong you, when you're angered, evaluate, think hard about your attitude, the violence, the vengefulness, and understand that is why Jesus Christ had to die for you. And when you realize it is because of those things that Jesus died for you and that Jesus has come to deliver you, truly, your heart will fill with joy. And when your heart will fill with joy and worship, the other person doesn't really, the thing that the other person did no longer bothers you. It's real, true. Sometimes, I, I, I wanna, I'm gonna make a public confession. Sometimes, like, like when I used to come to prayer meetings on Tuesday, sometimes I have a huge fight with my wife right before I come, come to church on like, prayer meetings on Tuesdays. And then you come, and you don't know, because you know, I'm a very good actor. But after the two hour prayer meeting, I always go back to my wife and say, I'm sorry. Because when you worship God for two hours, your, your perspective just shifts. When you don't worship God, vengeance. The way you pass the test of interpersonal conflicts, cry out to the name of the Lord. Know that he delivered you. Know that he intervenes. Know that he saves you. Know that he's delivering you. Know that he is real. Know that his promises are true. When these things become real, you cannot help but to love. Let us pray.